Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we're going to pick up the text in Genesis 6, verse 3, as we left off with a very robust discussion in our last episode, discussing the identity of the sons of God. And of course, we left that with really, we're, we're driven by the text and by New Testament commentary to conclude none other than that these have to be angelic beings. And obviously, everything that happens here in the first two verses, and this is just a sampling of the wickedness that's on the earth, everything that happens in these two verses just goes against everything uh, that the Lord has decreed. As far as the order of creation and everything like that, you've got, uh, you have rebellious angels who are doing things that they should not be doing, and it produces uh, absolute corruption uh, as far as the seed is concerned because the union that is uh, that comes from the sons of God and the daughters of man has to be something that is irredeemable uh, from a theological standpoint that's something that we didn't actually cover in the last episode but the fact is is now we have something that is distorted not just distorted or marred with regard to the image of god but something that just cannot be redeemed just as the fallen angels cannot be redeemed remember we have scriptures that say that the angels long to look into the things of salvation that's first peter chapter 1 verse 12 things into which angels long to look they can't understand salvation it's not available to them in other words what we've got going here is that when the angels contemplate, for lack of a better term, the salvation that is available to us, they see, they see man in his sinfulness as a race. They see that he's separated from the holiness of God and in need of salvation. What they can't understand is how that salvation is then offered because they too are separated from God. They have fallen and they have separated themselves from him. Nevermore shall they be reconciled. And there is no hope of redemption. And that gives a little bit of insight into that verse in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, how much they long to look into these things because salvation is not available to them. And it is available to fallen man. But what you have here is when you have angels that are coming into creation itself taking on the form of humanity as we see angels do and uh, they appear as men and, and men entertain them unawares and we're even told that in the new testament that some people do that unaware that that really lends credence to the idea that they're not some supernatural being in the sense that we would immediately know that we're in the presence of an angel but rather they look exactly like us and, and that's how they appear, in fact, uh, when we see them in various places in the scripture. And so the offspring that is produced from this union is going to be something that is beyond redemption. There is no hope for uh, these. And really, this is one of the impetus, uh, if you will, for this global judgment on humanity, because now all of a sudden you have the product of this union in the earth and potentially intermarrying again, and there's all kinds of wickedness 
Uh, we can't have this spread throughout all of humanity. And so that brings us to verse three, because that's where we left off. And we read this in Genesis 6, three, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. The sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. So there's that that definitive, you say, well, how do you know? Well, verse four tells us, these were the mighty men who are of old men of renown. And so we have a little bit of discussion here uh, with regard to this. So if we've already made the identification of the sons of man as angels, and of course this product, this uh, product of this union then is something that is wicked, then we have to deal with that. And of course the scripture calls them the Nephilim, and there's a lot of controversy about the identity of the Nephilim. Uh, we're seeing that abound in in the modern era with people claiming about giants and things like that. And of course, uh, want to say just a couple things at the outset here. The biblical worldview with regard to the flood is sufficient to explain the world that is around us. And you've heard it said probably from others, and you'll hear it here. But we all look at the same set of data. We look at the same evidence, and it's how we interpret the evidence. There's no one right way necessarily. Well, I would argue that there is. There are different ways to interpret the same data, and the the way you come to the data set uh, determines really the outcome. And so it's really your worldview that is going to taint or not taint that, if you will, And if you're coming to the data set with whatever data you're presented with and your mindset is anything but the Bible, uh, the Bible can't be true. It's just a compilation of fairy tales. God doesn't exist. Then you're looking for literally any explanation besides the Bible. If you come to the same set of data and you say, okay, well, the Bible is true. Does the Bible offer an explanation for this? Well, then yes, it does. Uh, But again, the, the, the foolish things you know, God uses to confound the wise and, and so forth. And go back and read second Corinthians chapter two. And so we've got a spiritual component to that warfare, but, uh, the, the flood, I believe, and we'll, we'll talk about more of the geology of, of that and the implications on the world in which we see today. There's ample evidence of that as we get through this text, not just chapter six, but into the actual flood itself in Genesis chapter seven, there are just scars all over the world. There's unbelievable evidence for a global flood, the entire globe over, not a localized flood, but an actual global flood. I mean, there's reasons that people find seashells at the top of mountains. It didn't take billions of years to do that. It's highly explainable if you have a worldwide flood that covers everything and then the floodwaters recede and lo and behold, you find the remnants of sea life on the top of what are now mountains, along with tectonic plate movement and other things like that. So we don't want to get too far uh, afield from where we are today, but all of this really does make sense and it fits in the biblical worldview. What does that have to do with the Nephilim? Well, there is debate today because we find fossilized footprints of giants. And when you measure, you know, you, you can look at a footprint and, you know, modern day archaeologists and anthropologists who study man can look at a footprint, especially a fossilized one. And there's a lot that you can learn in archeology, span you know, archeological podiatry, for instance, 
you can make a, a pretty educated guess as to the height and, and stature of, of a man, of a person who left that imprint. Well, if you have a large, large footprint in fossilized sediment and you measure that out and it turns out that the measurement of this person was, you know, eight, 10 feet, you know, taller than, than Henry Wadlow or whoever it was that uh, was, was the uh, tallest person in modern history and taller by, by him than a long shot uh, by, by maybe several feet. Well, now you've got something and, and you've got people saying that they're still among us. And, you know, where did he come from? You know, Henry Wadlow, for instance, eight foot 11 or whatever he was. And of course he had, he had a, a growth hormone deficiency and he died very young. And it doesn't, it doesn't appear that we had the same sorts of things in the fossil record. Well, the, so it's understandable then if, if there's a, a global flood, right? if there is actually the rapid laying down of sediment layers and organisms that are covered in flesh that would normally decay, you know, given the process of time you die and your body's just left on the surface of the earth, you know, there's all kinds of nature's vacuum cleaners, as you will, that come along and scavengers that will uh, take care of all that. Well, how do you get fossils of skin and those type of things of organisms that is going to come down through the rapid uh, laying down of sediment layers so that you're essentially buried alive or very close to alive. And, and that's how we have fossils of fish eating fish and they're caught in mid, uh, mid meal as it were. And, and so there, there is an explanation. Uh, we do have evidence of giants, uh, people who are far bigger than any of the tallest people that are on the earth today. Well, it makes sense, especially if they're preserved in the fossil record, because the Bible says that they existed, and they existed before the flood, and so the flood would preserve some of those records. And that's really where we get to this. So coming back to verse 3 then, uh, we see the beginning then of divine intervention. So we talked about the corrupt practices in verses 1 and 2, sons of God and the daughters of man, and of course we know the product of that as we jump ahead to verse 4. And it says that the sons of God came into the daughters of man. That's a biblical terminology for having marital relations, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. And of course, this this idea of Nephilim carries with it a giant. Uh, and and some people appeal to the book of Joshua for that, but. Uh, there's no reason necessarily to tie in the, cre uh, the the men that people saw in Joshua with these uh, pre-flood beings, the antediluvian ones. So uh, let, let's kind of dig into this a little bit, and, and we'll wrap up this episode probably in just <laughs> verses 3 and 4. But let's look first at verse 3. We have this divine intervention where God says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And what we have here is, you know, we have a limit. We have a limit on mankind. And there's a little bit of debate about this. The debate doesn't center so much in God's explanation here, my spirit shall not abide in man forever. Uh, he's not going to allow this wickedness to perpetuate forever and ever. And he points to the fact that man is flesh and that is a, that, that points to the idea that he was made from dust, and so therefore he's going to return to dust. And there's a limitation here. Now, I had traditionally understood this 120 years to be kind of an outer cap on human life. And there is a sense in which that appears generally to be true, but it's not a hard and fast rule. 
Because after this limitation that is placed in verse 3, we see Noah go on to live you know, to 950, and the patriarchs to live beyond these 120 years. Now, Joseph, at the end of the book, lives to be 110 years, so we do see human lifespans come down significantly by the end of Genesis. But the patriarchs, there's a tapering down and even into this age, into the modern era, you know, we have the, the modern record keeping, which is funny. We don't count things from long before, but the oldest uh, person in modern history to live was, a, I think it was a lady from France. I have it written down somewhere. <laughs> it's not readily available, but she lived to be 122 years old. So then the question is, is what kind of cap is this if it is a cap? And I had traditionally understood it to be that. And it's like, well, can somebody exceed that? Well, generally, no. You know, we, you know, if somebody lives to be 108 years old, I think the oldest person I've ever personally met was like 103 or 104. Um, but, you know, 108, 110, that's getting up there. Chances of them making it to 120, very, very, very slim. I think, you know, the oldest person alive in the world as of the time of this recording is like 117. They're from Japan. And, uh, you know, they're not going to go on much longer than that, if, even if they live to be 120 or 121. But this doesn't appear to be a hard and fast limit on the actual cap of years. Now, what we do have later on is Psalm 90, verse 10, where we are actually told that the days of man will be 70 years. That's a rough average, or if by strength, 80 so that actually talks to the lifespan of mankind. So that's that's an interesting that that's probably better around the target area, if you will, than than this verse that limits it to 120 years. And the averages actually bear out Psalm 90 verse 10 uh, more than they do uh, this limitation here in Genesis 6:3. So is there another is there another explanation for this 120 years? And it would seem that there is. Again, we look to the, the incredible academic uh, scholarship of Dr. Jonathan Sarfati here, and he points out that it's very, very reasonable that what we have here is really kind of a countdown to the actual flood, because we have not uh, been introduced to Noah except that you know we know who his father is. Uh, but we haven't really plunged into the Noah narrative yet. That's going to start here in a few verses. And we have kind of a rough timeline, you know, when we look at Noah, as far as how old he is, he's 500 years old when he starts to make the ark and the flood comes in his 600th year, roughly, uh, th there are some rough estimates here, uh, but Genesis chapter seven, verse six, uh, Noah and his sons or sorry, Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came upon the earth. Uh, so we know that we also know from the very last verse of Genesis chapter five, that after Noah was 500 years old, he fathered Shem, Ham and Japheth. So somewhere between his 500th year when he has his three sons and his 600th year, you know, that's when the floodwaters come. There's a hundred year gap there. Do we know exactly how long he was building the ark? No, we don't. And could this proclamation of verse three in chapter six come before he was 500 years old? It's possible. 
And here's what Dr. Sarfati is proposing, and it's a reasonable explanation. And so that's what we're counted, you know, th- th- that's where we are in- enjoined to just consider this, right? That, that's, that's what we should look at. When he says that his flesh or his days shall be 120 years, what Dr. Sarfati is proposing is that this is really a countdown. So in other words, this came in Noah's 480th year of life. And he's basically saying the countdown from now for mankind is 120 years. Not that his life will be capped at 120 years from here on out and no man shall live long lives because that obviously goes against Noah. We don't really know about his sons and how long they lived, but there is a tapering down because it takes several generations before we get to Abraham or Abraham eventually and then Isaac and Jacob and so forth. And they live well past that 120 year threshold as well. So the idea is, is that God looks at this for 20 years and we know that his long suffering is, is infinite. We definitely know that. And so is it possible that he could wait, you know, another 20, 30 years before he tells Noah his plans and commands him to build the ark? And then we know also from the new Testament that Noah is a preacher of righteousness that during his ark building decades, and it is decades that he's building the ark that people come up to him and probably mock him and test his faith. And then he tells them what God has revealed to them. And there's an opportunity for people to repent and they don't. All those things are probably true. And God is long suffering, but it appears. And I I actually am more inclined to take this now as rather than a cap of life into the modern day, that this is really serving as a countdown. The, the man's days from here on out, the Lord is saying, are going to be 120 years, and then I'm going to wipe man off the earth. That's really probably what it is. So he says, I'm not going to abide this forever. The wickedness that's going to come from the sons of God and the daughters of men, these Nephilim that are going to go on and corrupt mankind. I mean, he's going to look down on the earth and see that no one is righteous and the thoughts and intents of his heart are only evil continually. He's going to regret making man on the earth. That's verse five. It's verse five. And so there's that divine intervention. All right. So then we move to verse four. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. We've kind of touched on this uh, as far as these giant people. Now, here's the question. Are the Nephilim here the same of these, these giants that were spied out in the land of Canaan in the book of Joshua? I don't believe that they are. I don't think that there's any textual evidence. I don't think that there's necessarily any archaeological evidence to suggest that they are either. Do we have giant people by our standards in the world today? Yes, of course, we have some notable exceptions that come along. And of course, not only in the book of Joshua, but by the time we get to Samuel, we have David fighting this man of uh, this man called Goliath, and we know that he is a giant man. He towers above everybody else, and he's even bigger than our modern-day giants that roam the earth today, and we have a few. I mean, we're not talking the fairy tales, but we, we know real people who suffer from giantism and, and some, you know, they're generally types of mu- uh, mutagenic deformities here, uh, but that, that's what we have, mutations. But regardless, the fact of the matter is, is we have those in the world today. That doesn't mean that they're descendants of this ungodly union, this wicked satanic union between, uh, you know, fallen angels and the sons of men, because God wiped out that entire line. And it seems that the only people who are saved from it, these eight people who are redeemed, they're not going to carry that with. 
all that shows is that there's incredible diversity within the, the human gene code so that we have people of various sizes. I mean, you know, the average uh, American male and the average American female, different height and everything and build from the average Amer- the average male and female of a different country uh, and a different region, say in Northern Siberia or something like that. So there is incredible diversity within, within the human gene pool. And so we don't want to read too much into it. Other than that, uh, we know this, they were on the earth in those days. So let's see if we can flesh out Dr. Sarfati's theory here in those days would mean the days that he gave his decree. And remember, he's not going to talk to Noah for 30 more years, maybe, or maybe 35 or 40 years. Uh, I know Ken Ham, whose answers in Genesis, he's the president of that ministry there. He puts forward that he thinks Noah was ark building for about 75 to 80 years, I believe it was, somewhere around there, not quite 100 years. And that's fine. Uh, you know, I don't think we have to have a hard and fast rule about how long exactly it was. But if that's the case, then then verse 3 takes place maybe 40 years before he comes and talks to Noah. And so then we have this record under divine inspiration that the Nephilim are in, on the earth in those days for 40 years before God even comes and talks to him. And also afterward, that's the whole time that Noah's shipbuilding. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. These are the mighty men. So then tales live on because Noah and his wife have seen some of these mighty men of old and men of renown. His sons have seen them. They've seen the giants in the land. They've pondered these things. They've seen the wickedness and they have survived into lore and legend post flood. That makes perfect sense. It's a logical explanation for the text that is in front of us. And I think really without other things, I, these, th- this really serves to, to put a capstone on all of this because now we have a reasonable explanation for who the sons of God are and the daughters of men. We have a reasonable explanation for the Nephilim. We understand why their footprints would appear in the fossil records. We can say for sure that this is going to be antediluvian. It's going to be before the flood. And we have a reasonable explanation for how the tales came into existence uh, today and persist to to our modern day. And we also still have a reasonable explanation for how it is that there are people of unusual size outside of the normal boundaries within uh, humanity today. All of that Uh, makes sense even with the explanations that have been given. And that's really what God calls us to do is to use our mind in these things and to, to balance it with the rest of scripture. And I think what we've done here is done just that. So we'll leave this episode there. We'll come back, pick it up in verse five next time. This has been another podcast of expositional excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website, at gfbc.net.